Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Um, we are beginning our two Christmas specials. Uh, there's going to be two episodes for this Christmas special, and if you saw the title, you're probably like, how in the world is this a Christmas special? Um, but really, it's focused around the incarnation, and so it makes sense to me. Or perhaps you're confused because you saw that the title had Christmas special in it, but you think that Christmas is pagan. Well, you can read my views on that in my book, Holidays in the Feast. You can pick it up on Amazon and paperback and Kindle. In that book, I discuss whether or not Christmas is pagan, if there is a biblical support for celebrating Christmas to begin with. And then I also talk about Easter and whether or not Easter is pagan. And then we also talk about how Christ fulfilled the Old Testament uh, festivals. Also, just to note that these are going to be the last two episodes for the year. We're going to take a break um, through January, maybe a couple weeks of February. I'm not sure as I prep for our next series, which will be the Tulip series. I talked a little bit about that last week, so I'm not going to rehash that. And um, it looks like we're officially funded to renew for season four. Um we're at my minimum, so that could fluctuate, but I'm just going to go ahead and green light it now. So season four is confirmed. We still need more people to join the support team to make sure that we stay over that minimum um, funding goal. So please, if you enjoy Christ is the Cure, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Christ is the Cure. So today we're going to be talking about Christ is the law or Christ as the law. Christ is the law incarnate. Christ is the law of Moses, all those things. And, and this really comes back to a controversy that arose um, about the show called The Chosen. Uh, you may have heard of it. You may have not heard of it. Um, and the Book of Mormon. Now, that discussion was multi-layered, um, but here we're going to focus in on a major component of that discussion apart from all the controversy. And so this discussion uh, is happening now. That way it gave the discussion time to cool down. But we're going to discuss whether or not the statement Christ is the law or Christ is the law of Moses um, is theologically accurate or even viable. Um, in fact, I even put up a quote back then of Charles Spurgeon saying Christ is the law incarnate. And people were saying, well, Charles Spurgeon was wrong on this point. Now, some folk, uh, there's a range of views on this, that Christ is the law or Christ is the law of Moses. Some saw it as heretical. Some saying it's not very accurate. Some saying it's completely acceptable. Some saying it's acceptable, but not necessarily accurate. All that. The whole spectrum. Today, well, back then, I argued that it was not only acceptable, but consistent with various theological threads. Um, and so we're going to discuss those threads. And I'm going to basically give you a full version of why I think Christ is the law. Now, these episodes will cover a number of issues. And so hopefully you find it um, entertaining, enlightening, enriching in some shape or form, regardless of whether or not you agree with my conclusions. Hopefully this gives you a better appreciation for some of the things that we're going to be discussing, uh, cause we're going to touch on a lot of different things here. Um, the first five sections, because we're looking at a total of seven sections. Um, they're not too long. It's probably be two episodes total, but the first five sections are difficult to organize because of how connected they are. There's an intertextuality between them and there's different moving parts. And so I've done my best to present the discussions clearly with minimal repetition, but I left the repetition there for the purpose of connecting the threads that come before and after, right? Um, so once we get beyond the discussion of the Logos, particularly in relation to Justin Martyr, the discussion is much more simple. And really the reason why 
we're starting with this and why we're going so in depth to this is because of the way individuals see logos, that is the word that is translated as word in John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the logos or in the beginning was the word. Um, that word will impact how you read John's gospel and how you understand that word. Someone, we're going to talk about that. I'm not going to get ahead of myself. That said, before we begin, two points. One, I'm going to be citing a number of articles, books, etc. in both episodes. Um, both episodes, landing pages on the website will have all of these uh, journals and stuff like that cited. And some of them you can access for free, I believe. So I don't think it should be a problem to get to them. Um, and then secondly, I am aware of my speaking speed. I'm going to do my best to not burn through this all. So let's begin with just a little bit of a preliminary discussion. And this preliminary discussion is really for those first few sections that I mentioned earlier that are going to be hard to organize. Um, so we're going to discuss the Torah and the law, right? So Torah is a Hebrew term that's typically translated as law in your Old Testament. Um, and then we will need to discuss the connection between the Logos and the Mimra. Mimra is an Aramaic term, not an Arabic term, different. Aramaic is a sister language of Hebrew, and Logos, of course, is Greek. And Logos and Mimra both mean word, respectively. And then we're going to move into a discussion on the personified wisdom and its connection to Torah or law. And then we're going to talk about um, the discussion of Christ and the Logos and so on and so forth. Um, now, the reason for, again, this prolonged discussion is that it informs the way we understand John's gospel, Jewish thought. And um, as we discussed during the Through Nicaea series, actually, it has to do with Christology quite a bit. If you listen to the through Nicaea series on eternal generation, there's three parts. One of them has overlaps with this because it's connected. And then we're also going to find that um, whether or not we can say that the Logos or the word uh, had any connotation of connection with the law is going to be like a crucial point here, um, which I would argue I'm not going to, we'll just go into it. So let's begin by discussing the Torah and the law. So the first thing to discuss is the Hebrew term Torah, which of course I've already mentioned is usually translated as law. The, the term cannot be limited to just requirements, commands, and decrees, but should also be understood to carry the idea of teaching and instructions. Um, I believe it's Stephen Wellman Gentry's uh, book, Kingdom Through Covenant, that says some sometimes the best way to understand Torah is the covenantal instructions, uh, because you have these covenants that unfold throughout progressive revelation and each one has instructions that go along with it. Um, but to think of it as law in the same sense that, that we typically do, especially in terms of legalism would, would be a little bit too narrow uh, to say the least, but you can see this idea of teaching and instructions with Torah in texts like Job 22, 22, Psalm 78, one Proverbs uh, 1, 8, 4, 2, 13, 14, Isaiah 39, uh, and that's chapter 30, verse 9, um, and so forth. Now, most of us, when we think about the Torah, we think about that law which was given to Moses, right, and commanded to be kept. And the book of Deuteronomy, the word is typically used to point to the different codes of Deuteronomy. And the book of the law, or the law of Moses, can be seen in the category of Torah as well. Now, by the time of Christ, that is, by the New Testament era, the law, which was a Greek term, namos, um, which, so you need to remember, you have Torah and namos as the law, and then you have the mimra, 
and logos as the word. Um, but namos, or the law, would be a shorthand for the entire corpus of Moses. So the Torah would be the Pentateuch, and Penta means five. So you're thinking of the five books of Moses. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? And you can see this um, in various texts in the Gospels where Jesus has things like the law, the prophets, and the writings. And this would designate the entire Old Testament. The law, of course, being the five books of Moses, the prophets, of course, being the prophets, and the writings being everything else. Um, during the New Testament period, the Torah was central to Judaism, and the concept of oral Torah was important for the rabbis as they sought to interpret and apply the Torah. Okay. Now, Grossfield, in his contribution to the Dictionary of New Testament Background, which that whole series is really fantastic, states, quote, Torah constitutes a synthesis of the revealed will of God, end quote. So the Torah was revealed by God, and it was the guidepost by which the world should operate, uh, with one uh, rabbinic saying stated that, quote, were it not for the Torah, heaven and earth would not continue to exist, end quote. So the Torah was crucial, and if you remember, we talked about the people of the book, and we talked about communal reading events, and the synagogue would host these communal reading events, and you see Jesus opening up the scroll of Isaiah and reading from the scroll of Isaiah. The, the book was a central matter of importance for the Jewish people. They were the people of the book. Just as well, the, the Torah was being viewed as a universal law that connects all humankind, and we find this peak understanding of, of Torah um, within this time period of the New Testament uh, with the Jewish philosopher Philo, and we'll mention him uh, more than a few times, I think, as we go along. But he would say something like, quote, the world is in harmony with the Torah and the Torah with the world, end quote. So what needs to be summarized here before we move on is that the Torah was more than just the law of Moses in terms of what was given at Sinai. Uh, for the Jews of Jesus' day, um, the law revealed the character and nature of God, but it was also the entire corpus of Moses' literature. This is to say that the law given at Sinai was part of a larger whole, and we're going to mention that a couple times. We can't, we can't just think of the law as just the Mosaic covenant um, documents or codes, etc. At least not within the New Testament context. Debates about the law, its, its function, its parameters, etc. are debated, but that goes beyond what we're worried about here. So our second section... Memra, remember that's the Aramaic term for word, Torah, and Logos. And Logos is the Greek word for word. That one messed with my head for a second there. Um, the Greek word for word. Anyway, um, or the Greek word that we translate as word. It's been held as the best way to translate it. Um, within rabbinical literature, so the rabbis, you know, the, the teaching Jewish class, so to speak, we find an elevation of the Torah. Now, before we begin here, we, we want to speak about the fact that the rabbinic literature is collected after the New Testament during the rabbinic period, which begins after post-70 AD, uh, where there's more emphasis on what was written because of, well, the lack of the temple and sacrifices, etc. Um, and so what needs to be said here is that rabbinic literature is difficult because you can date uh, the Targums, that are these um, type of paraphrase commentaries of the Old Testament, and you can you can look at these traditions, and you can say that they're earlier to some extent, but to what extent we don't know. Most are happy to say that these views arise at least during the time of the New Testament writings, which you can look into that debate all you want. Um, so the point is that within this rabbinic literature collected after the New Testament, the Torah was equated with the Mimra. 
And then again, Mimra is an Aramaic term meaning the word of God. Um, and it's respectively paralleled with Logos. So Mimra and Logos can be paralleled. And um, furthermore, the Aramaic term Mimra can be paralleled with the Hebrew term Debar, which means word, um, and Torah in texts such as Psalm 119. And whenever we look at Debar and how it's translated in Psalm 119, sometimes we see it translated as Logos, sometimes we see it translated as Namos, or law in Greek. So th this is worth sitting on in that rabbinic literature is seen as, again, reflective of an early tradition. And then this coupled with wisdom traditions that we're going to discuss later in Philo, we find appropriate connections to be made on this subject at large. A lot of you are like, where are you going with this? It's going to make sense. Just, just give me give me some, some time here. So I can, I can briefly just give you, uh, this is important because it demonstrates that Philo's concept of logos that John seemingly modifies in his gospel is not exclusive to Greek-speaking Jewish populace um, influenced by Greek culture. Because the argument was that John used the, the word for word here because he was influenced by Hellenism in some shape or form. But if we make that connection with Aramaic and rabbinic tradition, then we find that they're not as far apart as people like to make them. Uh, and hopefully that makes sense. Um, because what, what it does is it reduces the term logos to a Greek Hellenistic um, concept opposed to connecting it to the Mimra, which has connections in the Old Testament. Of course, logos has connections in the Old Testament too, uh, which we'll get to as well. So, I mentioned what a targum is. A targum is basically like a paraphrased commentary on the Old Testament. And in the targums, and there's various ones that are more paraphrased than others, but the term mimra of God, that is the word of God, is used in the same way that the Greek-speaking Jews would utilize logos. So, for example, um, we, we know that there's a parallel between Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1. Um, we have... Genesis 1-1 in the beginning, and then we have John 1-1 in the beginning. And whenever we read the Targum, that is that, that Hebrew commentary, uh, Neophyti, I believe that's how you say it, in Genesis 1-1-3, it speaks of God creating the world by wisdom in verse 1, and in verse 3 it says, quote, And the Mimra of the Lord said, Let there be light. End quote. So the word of the Lord said, Let there be light. And there was light, as decreed by the Mimra. So what... What's interesting here is that the Mimra is kind of acting hypostatically as, as we would translate that as person, as a concrete reality, right? Um, so the Mimra is the Mimra of the Lord said, and there was light as decreed by the Mimra. Um, so within Judaism, we find that there's this concept whereby the word, or Mimra, has a place above the angels as an agent of God, who, quote, who sustains the course of nature and personifies the law, end quote. And that's uh, Mark Edwards' article, Justin's Logos and the Word of God, on page 263. Justin, as in Justin Martyr, and he'll come up later on as well. Justin Martyr was an early Christian apologist. Um, so again, for these rabbinic Jews, Mimra, again, was this agent um, who sustains the course of nature and personifies the law. Edwards' statement here um, is really the consensus of historical scholarship on the Mimra. Um, the Mimra is described as God's self-revelation, and the Mimra, or the Word of God, is seen as having a distinction between itself and God. So that's that's interesting right out the gate. Um, whenever you start thinking through John and how John uses um, his prologue in um, John 1, 1 through 118 to discuss the Word or the Logos. Now, Robert Hayward, 
uh, summarizes that in rabbinic literature, the mimra is a hypostasis, that is, a concrete reality or existence, something that is real, which I kind of mentioned. And that's Robert Hayward's uh, The Divine Name and Presence, the mimra. Now, we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but I'm just going to say that both the mimra and the logos, both of these words, have background specifically in relation to wisdom literature of the Bible and other Jewish literature of the Second Temple period. In the Second Temple period, and for the sake of clarity here, the Second Temple period should be thought of as the time of Herod the Great through AD 70, so uh, right around the New Testament era. Um, so it's loosely the period between the Old and New Testament. So now we're going to move into that next point of contact, which is the understanding of personified wisdom and that wisdom's relationship to the Logos or the Mimra and the law in the Torah. So there is, like everything else, the discussion to be had on the connections between the Mimra, Logos, and so forth. So if you if you really want to go into the weeds, you can start with the sources I give you and read through footnotes. If you if you don't read through footnotes when you're reading books and picking out more you know resources to look through in those footnotes, you're missing out. That's that's where it's all at. It's all about the footnotes. Anyway, um, so let's talk about wisdom, Mimra, and Torah. And this is our third section. So one of the easiest points of contacts for us to make is that personified wisdom. Um, because most of us recognize this already whenever we read through Proverbs. It's pretty straightforward. What we may not realize in our contemporary setting is that this personification of wisdom is highly relevant to early Christological debates in the post-apostolic period. The reason is simple. The Logos of John's Gospel, that is the word, and Paul's designation of Christ being the wisdom of God, who is the means by which the Father created all things, is more similar to Proverbs 8 than Genesis 1. And a lot of us don't realize that. Um, this connection between John 1 and Proverbs 8 would be a major point of discussion in literature between the Arians and like Athanasius and those individuals. And if you listen to the Through Nicaea series, you, you already know this because we talked about this whenever it came to eternal generation of the sun. Um, so it's based off of the context of Logos and wisdom's connection in Jesus's day. So in Second Temple Judaism and rabbinical Judaism, that is the time period a little bit before Jesus's day, then after Jesus's day. So that whole area, uh, the temporal area, if you can imagine that, um, we find this notion of a pre-existent and personified wisdom and a personified word, logos, or memra, right? We already talked about that idea of a personified memra um, that shows up in rabbinical tradition in connection to uh, Genesis 1. And if Genesis 1 is connected to Proverbs 8, then you start seeing that connection be even more solidified. Um, hopefully that follows. So this will be connected eventually to the Torah and the law, but we're going to establish this first point first. This idea of personified word has grounds in the Old Testament, right? Uh, Chad, Chad Bird's book, um, I think it just might be called Christ in the Old Testament, uh, has a discussion on the personification or the agency of the word in several texts that is pretty interesting, actually. So like we mentioned, there's this connection between Genesis 1, Proverbs 8, um, and in Proverbs 8, we find wisdom as being possessed by God before creation. And the Greek and Targum tradition would describe wisdom as being begotten by God. And this here is another argument for the connection between John 1 and Proverbs 8, or the wisdom literature in general. Um, so to highlight this, we're going to look at a few Second Temple writings. Uh, the Book of Wisdom, or the Wisdom of Solomon, or Pseudo-Solomon. 
and then also Bensira or Ecclesiasticus. And these are apocryphal writings. We talked about the Apocrypha and their influence a few episodes back. If you haven't listened to those, go listen to those. We have, gracious, three episodes on that. First one talks about the canonical status. Second, third one talk about their influence. So, so that's that. Um, but the Second Temple writings are important for understanding the Jewish context in which the New Testament was written. And both of these wisdom literature books were highly popular, especially Bensira or Ecclesiasticus. So first off with the Wisdom of Solomon, um, it dates between the 2nd century BC and the 1st century AD. So we're looking right over this New Testament era. Now in chapter 7, verses 22 through 26, we read of wisdom as being the fashioner of all things, the breath of the power of God, an emanation of pure glory of the Almighty, the radiance of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the activity of God, and an image of his goodness. Um, and if that sounds familiar, you can kind of hear how Hebrews 1 plays off of that, because you hear about the Son through whom the world was created, who is the, the radiance of the glory of God, who is the, the image of his very nature. And just to clarify, whenever I say play off of that, I don't mean that it was necessarily utilizing this text or saying that it's canonical or accurate, but rather it seems to be taking these concepts of the wisdom of God and saying, no, no, this is the sun. And then it corrects those things. And we see that with John as well, whenever it comes to um, the understanding of Philo. Um, so anyway, um, this theme of wisdom as God's companion in creation continues throughout this book. But that, that's probably the, the biggest chunk that I wanted to bring into this. So the other one is the wisdom of Sirach, or Ecclesiasticus, which is not Ecclesiastes, different, um, which was written around 200 to 175 BC, so before the New Testament era. Um, in chapter 1, verses 4 through 15, the literature describes how God created wisdom before all things and how wisdom dwells with creation. Now, in this work, wisdom is connected with God's word and command. Quote, the fountain of wisdom is the word of God in the highest, end quote. Now, in chapter 24, 1 through 23, wisdom is depicted again as saying, quote, I came forth from the mouth of the Most High, end quote. And before the foundation of the world was established, this is what occurred. In Sirach, or Ecclesiasticus in particular, wisdom is equated with the Torah in a number of respects. And again, Torah is law. So wisdom is connected tightly with the law and Sirach. And so that means that in this literature, we have wisdom, the word, and Torah all tightly knit. Further, in 24, 23 through 33 of this text, we find a relationship between the personified wisdom and Torah being highlighted, and wisdom is seen as the expositor of Torah. Um, and this is particularly interesting whenever we start thinking about how Jesus interacts with the law in texts like Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount. But anyway, um, in this highly popular Jewish text, the Torah is seen as the law of life in 1711, and the fulfillment of the law in 24.8 comes through wisdom. To circle back to the wisdom of Solomon, we find the logos, or wisdom, as an emanation from God. And within this work, the terms logos and namos, remember the Greek term for, for law and then word, being translated as the word of God and the law of Moses. Heo, I, I hope I pronounced his name correctly, his, um, his work has been the one that I've really enjoyed. But he summarizes, quote, the term namos and logos in Wisdom of Solomon, which appears to be semantically identified with the Torah, have an implicit correlation with wisdom in a manner similar to the identification between personified wisdom and Torah in Sirach. However, in contrast to Sirach, the Wisdom of Solomon does not appear to attempt to directly connect personified wisdom to Torah, but instead emphasizes 
the images and roles of personified wisdom in relation to the philosophical logos or God himself. So to summarize the kind of two views that we see, we see this tight connection of Torah with the word or Mimra um, and wisdom flows from the word. But then we also have this, uh, this vision of wisdom being linked to the practical application of the Torah, which is conceived as the word of God. Uh, and so in either case, the Torah is seen as the word of God and wisdom is connected. And, and it is in Sirach where wisdom fulfills the, the word of God or the Torah. And so while there is this connection between Torah and wisdom in the second typical literature, we must ask whether or not this connection is found in the Hebrew Bible, uh, to which I can simply say yes. Now, Torah in the book of Proverbs makes its appearance as instructions and teachings, which can be seen in examples such as Proverbs 1, 8, 3, 1, 6, 20, 6, 23, and 7, 2. So in view here is this broader view of Torah rather than just the codes of Moses, right? Uh, instead, Torah is related to the concept of wisdom, which is derived from the revelation of God through God's word. So in other texts of the Old Testament, we find this connection between Torah and wisdom in uh, Psalm 119, where the word is tightly knit into discussions. And you can also see this in uh, Proverbs 1, 3, and 8 as well. Um and, and, and you can see this all fleshed out in, in the sources. I, I'm trying to synthesize. We're already at 25 minutes and gracious. Um, so particularly interesting is the depiction of the word or memoir of Lagos and Philo. Okay, so Philo of Alexandria was a Hellenistic Jewish philosopher. Now, again, Hellenistic is um, the Greek culture. And to be Hellenistic was to be influenced by Greek or to synthesize Greek philosophy or ideology. And so that, that that's just... To help you there if you don't know that term. And he lived between 20 BC and 50 AD, which means that he he lived very um, parallel, contemporary with the New Testament authors. And for, for context here, John wrote after Philo's death, which is interesting. But his articulation of the Logos, and that is again the word, um, is highly discussed in relation to John in, in numbers of commentaries. There are significant overlaps between the two, and so that's what makes it hard. But there's also very noticeable distinction, and you'll likely hear that as we go through this. So for Philo, the Logos is an instrument which God used for creation. Um, and without going too far into that discussion, we find Philo describing the Logos as reasoning, uh, this divine word that is eventually connected as a second God that is with God. Now, we've already talked about this idea of personified wisdom existing before Hellenization in the Hebrew Bible, and Philo's concept of Logos, or the word, takes influence from this Jewish conception of personified wisdom, Torah, and Mimra, and his understanding would further influence Jewish exegesis in regards to personified wisdom later on. Heyo, again, helpfully points out that, quote, Philo's Logos is, however, only a prerequisite for the Yohanni Logos, that is, John's Logos, uh, but not an omnipotent key for this Logos. On the one hand, on the basis of Philo's Logos, the mutual interactions between Jewish Logos and Christian Logos involves this particular theological development of John's Logos as a god. And on the other hand, on the basis of Jewish exegetical practices, the personification of wisdom in relation to Torah, Word, and Mimra. And this influenced the notion of John's Logos as the incarnate Logos. End quote. So in Philo, we find that the Logos is a synthesized form of hypostatic notions of Torah um, that is also a combination of Torah, 
Memra, Lagos, and Namos. <laughs> so again, Heo basically points out that this relationship between Philo's thought between the Lagos and personified wisdom is evidence um, that he pulled from a hypostatic notion of Torah and wisdom literature. He says, quote, the relationship between Philo's Logos and personified wisdom is so profoundly related to later Yohani Logos of early Christian tradition. And with that said, it needs to be remembered that you have this hypostatic notion of Torah, this personification of Torah, and this personification of wisdom that is tightly knit with John's Logos. Now, Philo, he actually equates his Logos to the essence of the Law of Moses, but also he has the Torah as this hypostatic personified notion that was created by God before the creation of the world that acts as a blueprint designed for the work of creation. So the Logos is the essence of the Law of Moses, but the Torah was a created personification um, that acts as a blueprint again. And that, that blueprint ideology would continue through rabbinic tradition where um, the Torah is the blueprint for the world. Craig Keener summarizes by stating that Philo's Logos logically combines the universal law or Torah and divine wisdom. Furthermore, in his conception of the Logos, Philo has the Logos functioning as a mediator between men and God, as well as being a hypostasis or individuated reality in proximity with God. With this all said, as rabbinic tradition developed, the tradition would move all the focus off of the Logos or wisdom to Torah and personified wisdom. And that would become the more prominent view, especially within the post-70 context in the medieval period. Um, so all this background um, can show us that by the time John penned his gospel and used the term logos, we have more than just a mere simplistic understanding of rationality or whatever else you may see. Um, in fact, you, you see that quite a bit. People will say, well, logos means rational principle. But that would limit John to a Stoic understanding, a Greek philo philosophical understanding, which, um, which goes much deeper than just mere rational principle. That's, that's simplistic for John and it's simplistic for Stoic philosophy. So let's quote D.A. Carson at length in his commentary on John. Quote, however the Greek term is understood, there is more readily available background than that provided by Philo or the Greek philosophical schools. Considering how frequently John quotes or alludes to the Old Testament, that is the place to begin. There, the word of God is connected with God's powerful activity in creation, revelation, and deliverance. If the Lord is said to speak with the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 7.3, elsewhere we read that the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. It was by the word of the Lord that the heavens were made, and that same word affects deliverance and judgment. When some of his people faced illness that brought them to the brink of death, God sent forth his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. This personification of the word becomes even more colorful in Jewish writing composed after the Old Testament, um, and he means wisdom of Solomon. Um, whether this heritage was mediated by John, by the Greek version of the Old Testament that many early Christians used, or even by an Aramaic paraphrase called the Targum, the ultimate foundation for this choice of language cannot be in serious doubt. There are other components in the Old Testament background to the term logos. The wisdom of God is highly personified in some passages, um, becoming an agent of creation and a wonderful gift. This personification, again, is seen in later Jewish writings, and many scholars finding frequent parallels to John and wisdom literature hold that the evangelist assigns to logos some of the attributes of wisdom. Something similar could be argued for the place of Torah, roughly the law or teaching of God in rabbinic thought. And again, the word whom John is announcing picks up such themes and in certain respects transcends them. 
There is much to be said for both views. However, the lack of wisdom terminology in John's Gospel suggests the parallels between wisdom and John's Logos may stem less from direct dependence than from common dependence upon the Old Testament uses of Word and Torah from which both have borrowed. In short, God's Word in the Old Testament is as powerful as self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation, and the personification of that Word makes it suitable for John to apply as a title of God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of his own Son. But if the expression would prove riches for Jewish readers, it would also resonate with the minds of some readers of early pagan backgrounds. In their case, however, they would soon discover that whatever they had understood the term to mean in the past, the author whose work they were now reading was forcing them to, into a fresh thought. So that was a long quote on John 1-1 from Carson's commentary. And then when we get to verses 3 and 4 in John's prologue, we find this by Carson. Both wisdom and Torah are commonly associated with life and light in Jewish sources. John ties them in with Christ the Word, end quote. And so at the end of the day, a key distinction is made between John's Logos and Philo's Logos. And that is that John identifies the Logos with God himself as God the Son, and furthermore states that this unique Son of God took on flesh and became incarnate and tabernacled among us in John 1.14. Um, so this incarnate Son who is the Word, is identified as being the self-disclosure of God, of his wisdom and instruction or Torah to a new level. The Word is the source of wisdom and the law and has become incarnate, bringing grace and truth that surpasses that which Moses had given through the Torah. Um, and we're going to stop this episode here. We're at the 33-minute mark. Uh, we're going to continue next week by talking about wisdom, law, and Christ. And then we're going to go further more into Christ as our righteousness to further my thesis. And then we'll end the episode by discussing some common objections. Um, and so if you have some objections to this episode, bring them up. Email them to me at nick.campbell at christisthecure.org. And I can address them in the next episode. And so you guys have a wonderful, wonderful week.